Please turn with me in God's Word to Luke chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Begin in verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. They kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. He convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Well, our sermon this morning centers around two statements by Jesus in Luke, the middle of Luke chapter 9. 
The first one comes in verse 41. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? And you know, to modern ears that seems rather harsh. We are so accustomed to mealy-mouthed words, words that conceal the truth rather than display it, and seek above all things never to offend people. These words were rather offensive. Indeed, if whoever heard those, whoever was in the, the hearing of his voice, would have been offended by them. But truer words have never been spoken. And these are words that our generation desperately needs to reckon with. That this is a sad truth about the human condition. That is us. We are not a different generation from that. We are precisely the same. We likewise are a faithless and a perverse generation. And our maker and our savior, our redeemer is speaking to us in these words. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner that those words sink down into our heart, the better. The second statement is in verse 44. Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And these are rather stark words as well. On the one hand, he's basically reiterating what he had said earlier on in the chapter, you know, in verse 22, when he explains what's going to happen to him. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. But of course, it seems they didn't get it the first time. They didn't receive those words. They didn't believe them. They hadn't sunk down into their ears or into their hearts. And so he repeats it. And he does add this. He adds a bit of information when he says that he will be betrayed. And both of those things, the fact that they hadn't listened the first time, and the fact that even in their midst, in in the group of disciples, there is one who is going to betray his friend and his master, Judas. And to add to it, by the way, something he doesn't mention, that, that the authorities of his day were quite capable of murdering the Son of God. I think all of those things makes Jesus' point precisely. It is a faithless and perverse generation. And again, was that just in Jesus' day? No, that's the sort of thing. That is the situation of what comes of our fallen nature. That is our situation. And I do not think it is just them that that prove Jesus' point. I think that sadly, I prove Jesus' point. I think, in all honesty, you prove Jesus' point as well. That too often we are characterized by faithlessness and perversity. Now, isn't it wonderful, though, that in the midst of this very depressing picture of the human condition, we have these words of hope, and it is these words that he emphasizes more than anything else. He wants these words to sink down into our ears that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, meaning that he's going to die. And he's not going to die for himself. That's not why he came. He didn't need to do that. He died for his people. And this is the only hope that this faithless and perverse generation can ever have. That's the title this morning. It is Hope for a Faithless and Perverse Generation. And I have four single word, well, along with the article, the single word points. First, the generation. 
Second, the request. Third, the foretaste. And fourth, the hope. Generation, request, foretaste, and hope. We begin with the generation. Verse 37, Now it happened on the next day when he had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. And you would think, by the way, that this would in some way undermine the statement that Jesus soon enough makes when he says that this is a faithless and perverse generation, that the whole multitude is coming out to see him. This generation can't be that bad, can it? Well, don't be fooled. I think sometimes we're, we're too fooled by such things. To come and to, to see a show, unrepentant sinners are very, they're okay with that. They do that. They, they, did it, they do it in our day. They do it in, in Jesus' day. That's nothing great. The goats are always one to come see a show. And I think that that's the situation here. But faith Actually receiving what Jesus says about them and about themselves, that's a different matter. That's a different matter. And we've already seen that even among the disciples, as Jesus is trying to tell them the truth about what he's going to do about his mission, that he's going to to suffer and die, they don't want to hear it. Let alone those peripheral crowds. They are a faithless and perverse generation. They don't want to listen. Anyways, Jesus replies to the man's Request in verse 41, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Notice, interestingly, that Jesus doesn't find it particularly pleasant to be among these people. How long shall I be with you and endure you? That's what the word means, bear with you. I have to endure this. It's a reminder of what Jesus suffered throughout his earthly ministry. He suffered greatly, Merely by being with us. What does that tell you about your condition? That were Jesus among us, it would be a suffering thing because of who we are, because of the way that we're like. That must have been all the more keen for Jesus after having just been with the glorious, heavenly, sinless company of Moses and Elijah. And now he has to go down and face all this unbelief and perversity among his own disciples as well as others. What is this generation like? He says it's perverse. What does that mean? It's not straight. It, it tends, it goes off in a direction. This little gooseneck microphone, it could be straight like this. It's not. It's, it's twisted. And therefore, everything along with it is twisted. The cone of which comes from it goes that way instead of straight up. And what Jesus says about the generation and says about us is that we are twisted. We are perverse. We are moving in the wrong direction. It's exactly what Ecclesiastes 7.29 says. Truly, this only I have found that God made man upright. And that means straight. He made him straight as an arrow. With no tendency whatsoever to incline away from God and his law. But man of his own free will, he fell. They have sought out many schemes. And now what? We are twisted. We are perverse. We are not straight. Now it's Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. You mean not even Mother Teresa? No! None, none, no one does any good in the sight of God. The sooner you recognize it, the better. None. 
Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Surely not the kind little old lady next to me. It says it about the whole human race. Whole human race. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that is the situation of the human condition. That is the situation of this generation, and God will judge us for it. It's perverse. And you know what else? It's faithless. It's faithless. Contrary to what some men are saying these days, by the way, doubt is not good. I've heard this too many times. Now, now don't worry about doubt. If, you, if, if you're just honest with your doubts, that's fine. No, 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 no. No, doubt is a bad thing. Doubt is, is faithlessness. That's what the word means. And it's not a good thing at all. It's one of the reasons that, that this generation is so condemned. And who is he referring to when he says this? It's apparently, no, I understand that the father is the one who just said the words. And he's referring, he's, he's responding most directly to him. But it's not just him. And it's not just a crowd because the disciples are the ones, as we find out from other places, that this, this is the issue. I, it wasn't just the words of the Father. It was, and I ask your disciples to cast out this demon. And he, he was not able to. And that's the issue right there. It's not so much the man. It's not so much the crowd. It's the disciples. The, the, the ones that had uh, stayed behind and did not go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, they had been asked to, uh, to cast out the demon. They weren't able to. And in Matthew 17, we find out the reason. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. Because of your unbelief. That's your problem. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, be, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But, of course, they didn't have that faith. They did not even have the faith that amounted to the tiniest of all seeds, a mustard seed. They didn't have that. And therefore, they were not able to do this thing for the poor man and his son. And that is what he's looking at. He's beholding their faithlessness. And if faithlessness could be said about the disciples, how much more so than for everyone else? These words, you know, from Deuteronomy 32, 20, you may remember in Deuteronomy, they may well have been the verse that Jesus was quoting when he makes his statement. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation Children in whom is no faith. That was the condemnation of that generation. But secondly, we have the request. If that's the truth about the generation, we have a member of that generation coming before Jesus and he makes a request. How is it to be met? Verse 38. Then a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And, you know, he is no exception to this faithless and perverse generation. It's as true of him as anyone else. But there are some rays of hope here. We learn a few things about prayer, by the way. When he comes, he implores Jesus. 
And that's, that's the kind of prayer that's likely to be answered. You know, sometimes, sometimes we have maybe one of the Pharisees coming and speaking to Jesus and they speak in very offhanded terms and, and they don't get what they're looking for. And sometimes we, in our own prayer, come and we pray in a way as if it, it barely mattered to us whether we got it or not. Someone were listening to us, they would, they would say, this, this person obviously doesn't care. He speaks with such complete ambivalence. And I do not mean to say that we shouldn't be content in our situation. We should. But if we've got a request, make the request. Don't put ten different qualifications in front of it. Make it so that at least you would even know whether the the request has been granted by God or not. And it might not hurt to implore the Lord because he does not have to do it. You see, that's the difference. We're not used to dealing with kings anymore. This is a monarchy. We can be thankful for that picture that we have in this, this land. But that's been muted to an extent. We're speaking to an absolute monarch who does not have to do a single thing. And we do not come to him on the basis of our rights or on our merits. There's no meritocracy. We come to him on the basis of his sovereign grace and we implore him. Because that's the only basis upon which it's going to be answered. His sovereign grace and goodness to undeserving people. He implores Jesus. And likewise, our prayer should be fervent. Anyways, he also presents a case. I think that's something else. Besides fervency in our prayer, he presents a case. He gives a a rationale for his request. And it's a reminder as well that we need to make a case. If you don't have a case to present to God, if there's nothing that you can present to him, then don't bother making the prayer. There is some sort of case to be made. And so we build that case. And that's what the man did. Now, his rationale was this. Beyond what could be said of any child... In, in such a situation, this one is even more worthy of being spared because it is his only son. And isn't that funny? He says, spare my child because he's my only child. And Jesus, next thing out of his mouth after this is to say, I'm about to die. He, the only begotten son of the father. Reminder of the infinite Value of the Father giving his only begotten Son to die. Of the enormous value and worth that it is. And we can never forget it. Well, that was his rationale. And, you know, what he doesn't say, and this is as much and even better, what he doesn't say is important. He doesn't say, do this for my sake since I'm so righteous. He doesn't say, do this for my sake because I've earned it. Do this for my sake because you, you have to. Do this for my sake Because I'm so faithful. No, he is part of that generation that Jesus rightly describes as being faithless and perverse. He doesn't even say, not because of my orthodoxy. He calls Jesus teacher, by the way. So he's not quite there, is he? And you know, as much as we can be thankful for good teaching, as much as we can be thankful for the Westminster Confession... None of us absolutely have every last thing that could be known about God absolutely correct. And even our orthodoxy does not become a reason by which we come and, and say that we can have things before God. But what he implores Jesus is, look at my son. He doesn't have a reason in himself to do it. 
He simply implores the one who is able to change the situation, the sovereign Lord before him, and he implores him to look on my son. Now that word, look on, is like James 2.3, and you pay attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. He's pointing out they're wrong when someone comes into their church and they pay a lot of attention to the one who's rich and don't pay any attention to the poor. What Jesus is saying, pay attention to my son. He doesn't go even to say on the rest of those things. He just says simply pay attention because the rest of it is implied. When you pay attention to this situation, then I'm sure that you'll do something about it. That's like Hagar when she found rescue in the desert. She declared in Genesis 16.13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her what? You are the God who sees. You see me. I'm sure she understood that the God of the universe could see everything in his omnipotence. The question was, who is this God of the universe going to pay attention to? Little old Hagar. Yes, little old Hagar. This is the one that we come to, the God who sees. And Jesus demonstrates precisely that is the God whom that man came to on that day as well. Because he did not turn away. He did not say that you are unworthy of these things. In his mercy and his grace, he turns to him. And that's, that's our third point. This is, this is the generation, the reality of that generation, but yet we have this request made not on the basis of anything good in himself, but just imploring the Lord. Thirdly, I think we have a foretaste of what Jesus came to do. In verse 41, bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him, and I think we should just pause here and just reflect on the fact that this is a pretty bad demon. This is, as demons go, this is a difficult one. This is a, ba- a difficult case. As we have seen, the disciples were able to deal with many other demons on their own. They, recently, they, they were sent out. And they went out to do the mission that Christ had performed. And the demons were cast out. But not this one. And, you know, to add to it. This demon could not have been entirely ignorant of who was on the scene. We know that every case, when Jesus comes anywhere close, the demons already know about it. And here, this demon is fighting to the end. He is not going to go easily. Even as he's coming, he is throwing him down and convulsing him. It's a worst case scenario. And this is the warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here they are, fighting over a human body and soul. Just sort of like Satan, you know, in the garden. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, they're going to be at warfare one with another for all this era, for all the rest of the world. And as I said, according to Jesus' explanation in Mark 9 as to why the disciples could not cast it out themselves, it is not just that they're, they're faithless, they don't have sufficient faith to do it, but this particular kind was very stubborn. And the question is, who's going to win in this worst case scenario? Imagine, by the way, if you're that father... If you're that father, this is a pretty desperate case. It's not just the ordinary Jewish exorcists have failed you. Jesus' own disciples, which have demonstrated over and over and over again that they can, they have the power to cast out demons along with Jesus. They couldn't do it. Well, who's going to win? Is it going to be a long struggle? Is it going to be a drawn-out battle? No, in verse 42, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Again, as always, is anticlimactic. It's no contest. 
It's not that Jesus was exerting his power to do this. It was as easy for him as to, to utter the words that he'd previously said, as easy for him to eat breakfast as to cast out the very worst demon that had ever uh, inhabited anyone. It's no contest. Jesus, the creator of all things, rebukes one of his creatures. And that's it. That's the victory. And in that victory, we have a foretaste of all that Jesus would do. All that Jesus would do, not just one demon, but Satan himself would be cast out of heaven and all others with him. And he and all of the the other demons' power would be broken by the cross. Yes, of course, they can still speak to us. Yes, of course, it may even be the case that in some places they yet take possession of, of unbelievers. But with the core of their power, the reality of that power is the fact that they're dealing with a sinful people that have no redeemer, no redemption, that their sins have not been paid for. That has been utterly broken. And in verse 43 it says what we should say. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. That's, that's what happens when the forces of darkness, which, look... I, I understand that there were more demon possessions back then than we commonly see today, thankfully. In Jesus' time, the forces of darkness were marshalling against him in this, this warfare. But don't get the idea that they were comfortable with these things. They certainly weren't. You know, we think of how fearful we are of the occult. And when movies want to be really scary, they don't just go with a mass murderer. They go with the, the deep occult. And the more realistic they can make it, the better. The less theatrical, the scarier it becomes when it becomes something that looks real, that it might actually happen. This is the most fearful thing that you could possibly imagine for your son to be so possessed by such a demon. And Jesus rebukes him and he's gone. And that is the power of the strong man who can bind Satan. That is the power of the champion that God has given who is able to defeat all of our enemies. And that foretaste we must not forget. Whenever we are in difficulty, spiritually or actually in any other way, when we pray to Jesus, we must be reminded that when he looks upon us, all he has to do is speak the word. And even the greatest enemy is defeated. That's the foretaste that he gives. And fourthly, then he speaks some words. He gives the hope, the only hope. To his disciples in verse 44. Let these words sink down into your ears. For the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now again this is fresh from the declaration that he already gave. That the son of man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed and be raised the third day. But Peter didn't receive it. This is fresh from the words of the father. On the Mount of Transfiguration. Where he says, this is my beloved son, hear him, listen to him. Fresh from his declaration that these, the people before him and even the disciples are not listening. And out of sinless frustration with these people, there is such a thing by the way. Sinless zeal and anger and frustration, he says, let these words sink down into your ears. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. These are the words that Jesus chooses to emphasize, and it sounds like bad news, doesn't it? 
Sounds like bad news. And to the unregenerate, to someone who is thinking in terms of worldly wisdom, it is bad news. But these words are the only hope for a wicked and perverse generation like, like theirs and like ours. Jesus, in his frustration of even dealing with the people, how long do I have to endure you? How long do I have to be with you? In some sense, by the way, it was no tragedy that Jesus died young. Of course, it was by the sovereign determination of the Lord precisely how long that he lived in this world. But there's no wonderful thing for him to carry on in such a situation. But this word, this, what he could have done, you see, is simply have left us. He could have. He could have after seeing just how bad we are from a distance as eternal God, as a second person of the Godhead. He could look down and know exactly the way we are. But having experienced us up close and all of our filth and stench and repugnant as even those who follow him won't listen to him, he could have just walked away. Could have just walked away. And almost in in a renewed sense of the necessity for such a faithless and perverse generation, a hopeless generation, he says, let these words sink down. I will be betrayed, and I will die on your worthless behalf. I'm not going to listen to you, Peter, as you play the part of Satan and say to me that there's some other way. I know that there's no other way. And I'm going to walk down that. You don't deserve it. I'm going to do it anyways. He's going to die on their behalf. They are precisely a wicked and perverse generation. And that's why there was nothing else that could possibly help them. The only way for Jesus to save them, the only way he could be the good shepherd was to lay down his life for them. And that's what he determined to do. And he wanted them to not forget it. And that brings us to the question, why did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Because that's the only hope. It's not depressing news to speak of Christ and him crucified. It's not pleasant, but it is the only hope. He says and goes on in, in the other chapter, in 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. This is what they want. And if you let the world determine your agenda, that is what they are going to get. This wisdom, this sign. But we don't give it to them. No, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's the power of God to salvation to all who hear. That's why these words were the only hope. That's why we must preach Christ crucified. There is nothing else that can save you. Now, funny enough, just to confirm Jesus' verdict on that generation as being faithless, the text goes on in verse 45, back in Luke, but they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. How sad. And it is my fear, it is my great fear that some of you will walk away here not quite understanding what I've just said. I almost feel like like turning into Billy Graham and asking you to raise your hand and tell me who, do, who does not understand because I want you to know the truth. I don't want you to walk away and not understand these things. If you don't understand, let these words sink into your heart and your mind. You are a 
wicked and perverse generation. There is no good in you whatsoever. And your vain thoughts about coming to God on the basis of some good thing. And I know I've spoken to some of you. I've spoken to my own mother. And deep within our hearts, there is this residual desire to have some good thing to bring before God. And brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers... There is no such good thing in us to be found. There's none. And that's the truth that you need to understand. There's no good thing that you can bring. On the other hand, Jesus in his kindness and his marvelous and truly his amazing grace came to us, filthy generation that we were, rejecting him in his face at the very moment, And laid down his life in order that we might live. And we can believe in that. You know, in another place, Jesus described this generation just to to drive home this particular point. As we turn to application on this. Jesus said in Matthew 11, I was looking for words to describe the generation. But here's how Jesus himself goes on to describe this generation. But what shall I liken this generation? What shall I compare it to? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, that is a faithless and perverse generation, that nothing that God does for them is acceptable. The testimony of the greatest prophet that ever lived, John the Baptist, He says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the the sins of the world. And he manifested, he demonstrated, he flashed his, his credentials as a prophet precisely in his absolute separation from the world. Perfect separation from the world. And he says, yep, got a demon. Not going to listen to him, he's got a demon. And then we have the great high priest Jesus Christ who demonstrated both his impeccability and his great compassion and his, and, and his humility by having table fellowship with repentant sinners. And what do they say? They wag their fingers and say, no. Said, a glutton and a wine-bibber, friend of tax collectors and sinners, not going to listen to him either. What can God say to you? What can God say to you if you're still rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Every evidence that would possibly be presented to you, you, you hold up your hand and say, that's not acceptable, that's not acceptable, and that's not acceptable. Well, eventually, Jesus will say the same to you. The word is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And apart from that, you have no other hope. This generation must believe or it will surely perish. You know, they... When, and I say this because, you see, when they do all these things, when Jesus is pointing out the way this generation is, they, they are doing this rejection to their own destruction, as Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 11. And he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. I just ask, has the Lord done any works in this land? Has he done any works in the northeast of England? What then is the word to the unrepentant sinner living in such a place? That it will be worse for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah that never had the words of the gospel among them in this way. Well, you begin to wonder then if we are such a perverse and and unfaithful generation, how is it that we can ever believe? Well, I can tell you that there is a way. As I say that your only hope is to believe I would remind you that Jesus can reveal these things, that the Father can reveal these things. That's what he says. As he goes on in that very chapter I was just reading from, at that time Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. And he can do that. Faith is a gift of God. He gives that. And how we pray that the Lord would give us all faith to believe. Well, this generation has got to believe in faith, in, in Christ. It is their only, only hope, their only way in which they're going to be saved. Secondly, I'd say to Christians that we ought to shine as lights to this generation. You know, again, as I was thinking, how should I describe this generation? I was also thinking, what admonition might I give to Christians who live in this generation? But again, Scripture was way ahead of me. As you probably know from Philippians chapter 2, that we have instructions. It says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world. There you are. This is the generation we live in, and if we want to shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation, what should we do? What sort of special, new, creative ministry are we supposed to do to shine as lights? It's going to be something earth-shattering, no doubt, Right? No, no, it's not earth shattering at all. It's do all things without complaining and disputing. That's it. Say, surely it must be more than that. Do all things without complaining and disputing. What's so crazy about what's so different about that? What's so distinct about that? And I say, have you been in a workplace recently? Benjamin and I have the displeasure of overhearing the every single word of the adjoining office of this. Um, law firm and at least half of every conversation telephone conversation ends with a long tirade of complaints and the complaining goes on and on and on and we wonder what new thing could they possibly find to complain about and it is not just that workplace I believe it is all workplaces the Marine Corps yes we're tough and disciplined but you know we're famous that's one of the things if the Marines aren't complaining they're not alive is one of the things that we were saying That's reality. And if you're the one exception to that rule, yes, you are going to be a light in this world. Not just those out uh, out in the workplace outside of their home. Moms, when moms get together, unregenerate moms, what do you do? They complain. That's what they do. Well, you you can say commiserate. Yeah, that's that's a nice way of saying it. But that is exactly what unregenerate moms do when they get together, they, they complain. And if you're the one exception to that rule, do you think you'll be a light to this generation? 
I think you will. I think there is nothing that is more guaranteed to draw attention to the fact that you're different than that you do all things without disputing and complaining. And Christian children, that is why it is so desperately important for you to learn to do this. Desperately important for you to learn to do this. You who live in Christian homes, you who have Christian parents and have been given so many privileges, yet you find ways to complain. And the Lord is not pleased with these things. If you wish to be as light shining in this generation and to do the things that please both your heavenly father and your earthly father, you should do all things without disputing and complaining. Now what it says, by the way, is that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. You know, isn't that what the Jude benediction says? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We want to do that. That's what we should do. Do all things without complaining and disputing. And thirdly, I would say that we ought to bring our children to Christ. Don't miss that. Don't forget about that. And this man, when he came, he did something very good. He brought his child to Christ. Now, I would say, among other things, physically. There's this bizarre idea out there. Let them decide for themselves what religion to follow, please. That's like saying, you know, well, you know, I'll set breakfast before them and also set deadly poison. Let them choose themselves which one they're going to have. Because I shouldn't force good food on them. If they want to eat poison and die, then that's up to them. No. You bring them to church. All the more reason why we should establish our parental authority, that they not rebel against those things. We bring our children physically to Christ by bringing them to church, and we bring them covenantally. We claim the covenant promises. What else do we have? Sometimes I wonder, you know, as parents, we are sometimes extremely desperate. We cry out to God for our children, for the souls of our children, desperate that they be brought to saving faith in Christ. And we neglect the only promise that we have to work with. We don't, we're not... It's not our worth. We can't come and say, we're so wonderful, Lord, please do it. It's his promise that I will be a God to you and to your children. And you have nothing else to cling to. You've got to cling to that covenant promise. And you say, God, he is a child of your covenant. You have promised to be a God to me and to my child, and that is what I I claim. You say to them, you are a baptized child. You are a child of the covenant of promise. In any case... You say that you are a child of the covenant. And God has set his claim, his mark on you. And he is yours, Lord. And you are his child. And we bring our child in prayer. None of our children are beyond this help. They may not be with us in church, but they cannot outrun our prayers. And we do like this man does. And we implore the Lord on their sake, on their behalf. Fourthly and finally and very briefly, be amazed at the majesty of God. Verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. And if you have grown too callous, seen it all, heard it all, we need to repent. We need to be amazed at the majesty of God in doing such things as saving this little boy and maybe even saving ourselves, be amazed at the majesty of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, what can we say? We are a faithless and perverse generation. You have declared it, and there is nothing that we can do to gainsay that. There is nothing that we can do to argue against it. It's true, and we have ourselves confirmed it many times. What can we say, Lord, except to come to you as those who fall on our faces before you and ask for mercy, repent of our many sins, repent of our unbelieving, our faithlessness, as well as our perversity. And, Lord, to come to you in faith. Lord, we are so thankful that the words which Christ chose particularly to emphasize, the most offensive to the world and, and even to him, not exactly pleasant, that he came to die. Lord, we know that he came to save sinners of whom I am chief. And we are thankful for this glorious good news in the midst of so much bad news. How we pray that your powerful Holy Spirit would bring all of us to saving faith in Christ. And Lord, that you would do this work, that your work of sanctification would carry on and that we would truly be able to be lights, bright lights in this wicked and perverse generation. That we would truly be able to do all things without complaining and disputing. And that, Lord, in our prayers, we would seek you, we would implore you, and particularly for our children, that we'd come to you on behalf of them, not on our own goodness or anything. Lord, that you would look upon our children and save them. We ask, them in, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.